Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deep values and how we can keep seeing each other as fully human, even when we are really different. Today's episode was recorded on the island of Patmos in Greece as part of a gathering of an organization called Black Elephant, which you will hear a little bit about. And I spoke to two guests at the same time. The first was Dr. Martin Shaw, and the second was Felix Maka. Martin is a mythologist. He's the author of five books, the founder of the West Country School of Myth, which has trained hundreds of storytellers over several decades. He has a PhD in myth and is seen as one of the world's experts in these ancient stories. Felix is the founder of Black Elephant, and he is, uh, they describe that as an experiential social network based on vulnerability. He's also the author of The New Nomads, a book about a new age of migration and the challenges with that, but also possibly what it might gift us. We discussed both their different late life religious conversions. We talked about what a story really is, the role myth plays, addiction, recovery, and the power of good questions to bring us together. As usual, there's some reflections from me at the end. And in the meantime, I really hope you enjoy listening. Martin and Felix, I'm going to hit you straight off with a big, juicy question on this hot afternoon. Uh-huh. Not your standard uh, when you first encounter someone, but as we'll hear, you're used to big questions. You're used to questions that try and get below the surface of who we are. So maybe I will start with you, Felix. You've had a bit of time to sit with it. What do you think is sacred for you? For many years, I felt like I had to decide that. Um, And very late in life, it occurred to me that I shouldn't be the one to make that decision on my own. And um, there are some leitmotifs in my trajectory. Very young, I learned to listen to the other, the perceived other, and I decided... I don't know when, but very early that it would be always critical to me very at the, at a very deep level to engage with people that I deeply disagreed with. I, um, there was a moment in my life when I embraced faith. I embraced my faith and I even embraced formal, uh, organized religion. And at the beginning, the temptation was to do religion à la carte. And I realized that it brought me back to actually something that I had read in one of Martin's books, which is a very simple sentence, very simple question, which is, in what temple do you serve? And I realized that if, that when I did things à la carte, I was basically taking back control or going back to this illusion that I could be running the show. And when I run the show, bad shit happens. I become miserable. Usually I make life, the the life of those around me miserable. And very soon the universe tell me, tells me that, yeah, that it's not going to work. So, 
Um, I, I did, for instance, I did Ramadan this year for the very first time, actually seriously uh, did it. And it was an amazing experience. And it's not, I had not decided to do it. It, it happened almost on the first day of Ramadan. It occurred to me that I should try doing it because I come from addiction to drugs and my journey, which is now 10 years in, has been a journey to try to make the gap between what I say and what I do to make it smaller. And I realized this was an opportunity to walk my talk. Thank you so much. Lots, we will come back to you. Martin, tell me what you think is sacred for you. Or maybe how do you get on with the word? I imagine it's cropped up in your storytelling and mythology over the years as a a word of power. Yeah, it's a massive word. And I am amazed at how difficult a question it is to answer. I think probably over the years, my perception of the sacred has been a movable feast. I think when I was younger, um, the nearest I used to get to it was probably long periods alone in wild places, quiet places. I lived in a tent for four years, really trying to listen to what I found sacred in a, a world of wires and lights I was desperate, even though I was very far from anything organized. I know, I know now for that uh, old uh, still small voice. And so for a long time, it would have been nature. It would have probably been the first thing that I, I put my hand up for. And then, of course, as a parent, you know, the immensity of your relationship with a child, um, there's a curation to that and the inevitable scuffs and mishandlings of it, that reminds me that I'm touching on sacred ground because I don't always do a great job. But the consequence I feel when I don't do a great job is serious. And that tells me it's sacred because I I don't feel good. And now, of course, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this, I'm I'm a Christian. And so I, I still venerate creation, but I really love the thing, the being that created it. And that's mind-bogglingly bigger for me. Uh, You know, Paul talks about falling into the mind of Christ. uh, And I probably can't say anything too sensible at the moment because I'm falling into a devastation of love that I I simply didn't know was, was there before. Thank you. Let's wind back a little bit to your childhood and get a sense maybe of the beginning of some of those threads. Can you paint me a picture of young Martin running around? And were there <laughs> any big ideas in the air? The big ideas in the air in, in the early 70s. So I'm growing up in the west of England, born in 1971. The house is worth mentioning because the house didn't have a television in it, didn't have a phone, didn't have a car. Uh, we were just not very well off. But behind the house was a to a child at least, a large forest. And parents, a mum and a dad, who had a real interest in language, they had an interest in Christianity. They were and are what you would probably call non-conformists. So we've moved through a few churches over the years, burnt through a few of them. 
But it was very real for them. The Holy Spirit was a, a thing. It could be present or not present, and you could, it was, it was dynamic. Christianity was always dynamic, but, but church I struggled with. Uh, I went, I've been to, you know, countless thousands of hours of church services up till I was about 17. But what the, the form of Christianity as I was exposed to as a kid, it didn't really have a contemplative tradition attached to it. There certainly weren't any saints. There weren't any wild old women of the desert. Um, it was very sermon orientated, very scripture orientated. And actually, as an older person now, I see the merit in those things. But between me and you, there was a disconnect between the radical countercultural message of Yeshua and then everything that had been built around it seemed very domestic, rather tame. Uh, my association is of radiators that are too hot. Uh, and I had a perpetual fantasy as a kid that, that Aslam was going to burst in, grab the preacher, not damage them, just shake them uh, so some fresh air could get in the place. Yeah. So did you uh, keep hold of that thread or at what point did it drop? I would have been 17 uh, or maybe even 16 and I was playing drums in punk rock bands and I was touring, you know, uh, from 1988 onwards. So I was in Berlin when the wall came down, you know, amazing stroke of luck. And I think by then I felt, you know, now if you ask me, I'd say Christianity is a dream, but it, it's forgotten it's a dream and it's in danger of becoming a hallucination. <laughs> and I think at that age, every, it felt like I'd been chloroformed and I wasn't interested in it. And um, I, I never lost ever for a second a sense that there was some sort of being behind the curtain. That's not a very sophisticated way of saying it, but it's always been there. And I think I, think I always felt... If in doubt, if in doubt, imagine that your conscience is the voice of God speaking to you. So I've tried to hold on to my conscience. I've made an, an appalling job at times, but that was, I think, that was the, the thread. It was just a sense of, in difficult moments, can you still do the right thing? Huh. And you were drawn into uh, a different or adjacent, or we might say overlapping narrative and imaginative world and have lived your life as a as a mythologist and a storyteller which is not your classic top of a cv how did you go from a drummer in punk rock bands to a professional storyteller well there's a very there there's a there, there really is a uh, there's a damascus road moment for sure so i would be about 23 or 24 uh, I've got a three-album publishing deal with Warner Brothers. Many things seem to be going my way. But I had a call from a friend who said, look, I'm going to do this thing. How do you fancy going to Wales and sitting on a hill for four days and nights with no food? Now, now, I, you know, I don't think he would have got a reaction out of me. But when you're young, you said that sounds like the greatest thing I've ever heard of. He probably framed it in... Uh, mythic imagery and I found myself very near a big big a big hill in Snowdonia called Kaya Idris, Kata Idris, the seat of Arthur and that's what I did. I sat in the way that the desert sisters and the desert fathers and the desert mothers sat and on the last night in the middle of the night um, I had a profound spiritual breakthrough. 
Uh, it didn't come in any ostensibly Christian form, but it was extremely dynamic, uh, very discombobulating, and it was actually enough for me to go back to Warner Brothers, return the contract, return the contract to uh, the head of publishing at the time, and I set out and lived in a tent for four years to try to try and ground quite what had happened to me, and I was rendered... Quite honestly, I was rendered speechless. I didn't really have normal words. Psychology wouldn't do it. Uh, and as I sat in my tent and time passed, it was then that I remembered, oh, when you were small, you loved myths and stories, and they did things to you, and they navigated your heart in a way that's really hard to explain. And I knew that when finally the time came that I would talk about quite what I'd gone through out there, uh, too many I statements were going to sort of reduce it in some way, and they were going to make me feel isolated from other people. Uh, at worst, you're crazy or seen as a bit of a guru or something like all of these. Were, I knew this was dangerous ground. So I started to tell stories in a way to both transmit, but also to understand on a deeper level quite what was happening to me. But I didn't, obviously, the professional end of it was, you know, I I had literally never seen a storyteller. I'd seen people read stories, God bless librarians, people in libraries, but a stand and deliver storyteller, I don't think I knew it existed. It's making me think of the film Into the Wild. I don't know oh, if you've yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah. I could just have this image of this young man, possibly slightly underwashed. Your parents must have thought <laughs> you were having a four-year breakdown. You know, my parents are extraordinary in this regard because I went about, I went as far out from when the buses don't park as you could possibly imagine. Uh, it was never for me the use of psychotropic drugs or anything like that at all. But, but it, I think the thing is, my mum and dad, they thought, well, what was, what was Yeshua's relationship to the world? Like he seemed to kind of like it. And he's always slipping. He, whenever he comes into a city, he slips out fairly early in the morning to pray. And so uh, it, it's providential, I see now. They always kept the conversation going. Not once ever did they say, you know, you've lost your mind, you're luciferic, nothing like that. They just said, what happens next? And we love you. Wow. I just want to, I always want to leave a beat around stories of good parenting. I feel yeah. like that's maybe becoming one of the things that's sacred to me. But you took that thread and started telling stories and rediscovering myths. Many, many books all over the world. This is your DNA. This is who you are. Why is it important? What are you doing when you're telling an old, old story from a British or an Irish or another mm. country's oral tradition? It's, it, that's a deep question, and that, that, is a, that is a question that could take me many days to unpack. One of the things that I'm very interested in is not reciting a story, but truly imagining it in front. Now, the three of us, I actually told a story in front of you only a couple of hours ago. Now, whatever your reaction to it, the one thing that you can be assured of is that I wasn't phoning it in. Uh, I was actually seeing it, negotiating it. The language is different every time. So there's a sense for me that you're, you're dealing not with a pelt, but with a wild animal. And I like that. And you're not meant to be a lion tamer. You're meant to be a lion dancer. You're moving in and out of this strange, burdens, burdensome thing 
I'm very aware that for some reason human beings tend to imagine in stories. So you go way back to Lascaux and beyond, we tend to imagine in stories. And long before we had even cuneiform tablets, let alone smartphones, our memories were finite. We can't, we can't, we don't have infinite recall. So the things that a particular culture regarded as truly subtle and important were secreted within stories that that storyteller would then carry almost as a, a, a spiritual bundle from tribe to tribe or people to people. Um, and it's something to do with that. It's making me think, um, this is a slight digression, but when I talk about my vocation, I felt very early on that the stories we as a culture tell are the yeast for the spiritual atmosphere, that they are what uh, rule things in or out as possibilities. Rule, um, they help define the good in this very subtle way. And they help us see each other as more or less fully human. They help us, um, you know, and you've seen the change over the centuries in the stories that tell you, you they help make the possibility of divine love imaginable or unimaginable. But often when I've been talking about stories and, and, and telling stories, whether through think tank research or making programs at the BBC or making podcasts, I think I'm using it quite loosely. What, what is a story if that's not too enormously difficult? No, you know, you know, Elizabeth, I think I, I've wrestled with this a lot. You know, every, every cup twice a week, uh, someone will say, what exactly is a myth, for example? Is a myth in the way we, it, does it mean something that isn't true? Is it a beautiful lie? What is it? And I've gone round the houses and there, there is almost no end to the sound bites I could now provide. But funnily enough, at 51, I've come to the conclusion that a functioning, useful, healthy myth, because not all myths are healthy, uh, is a sacred story. And you know it's sacred because it does something in the room. That doesn't mean that it is a benign experience. It could be a provocative experience. But when a story is really functioning in, it, in its efficacy, uh, you know the psychic material of the room has just shifted. Something has just shifted. Now, candidly, between the three of us and anybody that's listening, not all storytellers can do that. They can't do it. Or they are telling stories in an abysmal attempt to be liked mm. and things. You can't behave like that. And stories will not respect you. You'll realize quickly that I'm talking about stories in a very animate kind of way. They're not really things that I learn off the page. I try and get it off the page as soon as possible. Uh, I can learn by ear very quickly. But... um yeah, they're in, in essence, sacred stories. Yeah. It's really interesting when you talk, it's it's like you're in a conversation uh with a, with a, with stories as selves almost, as 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 forces yes. in the world, as um yes. things to be respected and in conversation with, rather than captured and pinned, which I yes. like. Now now one of the things I, I think we'd be interested in is the notion of new stories. Because, you know, the the world I live in perpetually, again, you know, two or three times a week plopping into the inbox is, please stop telling the stories that you actually tell. They're horrible. However, could you just kind of cut and paste a new story? Because we think you probably, <laughs> you know enough of them. But the trouble is, if I, if I do, I, when other folks try and do that, I can always tell. Mm. 
I can tell. That doesn't mean that there is no... Inevitably, new stories will come. Uh, Mythically inspired stories. But myth itself has this difficult weight to it where, in many respects, myth has no author. It's the bones of something that have passed through community to community to community. And the, the genius of a teller, I very rarely spoken about this in public, you have what they call the matter and the sense of a story. The matter is what happened, but the sense, the sense is what the teller that day, in that moment, one time only, creates in front of you, the kind of reassembling of that small cosmology. And that is exciting stuff for me. I mean, it's breathlessly exciting. I saw um, the old woman that taught me the story that I taught you today or told today, Joy Timpanelli, you know, this amazing Sicilian-American storyteller. She started, and I swear to God, there were birds moving in the air around her hands. I'd never seen anything so exciting. I'd never seen anything so alive to the imagination. And she could draw in references to, to things that were happening right in the room that day without it collapsing. Without, without a spell being broken. So I had some good mentors. Good. There's much more we could say about that, but I am going to fast forward to your recent experience, A Hundred Nights on Dartmoor. Yeah. What was that about? Well, it was, believe it or not, it's actually 101. Well, uh, so after that first time on the hill, 25 years ago, I think now, maybe longer. I trained in that work. It took eight years to become something called a Wilderness Rites of Passage Guide. I've worked a lot with what we used to call at-risk or vulnerable youth. There's probably a new phrase, but that was what was happening then, where I was, it was prison or him. And a few, most shows said, we'll just do the time. We'll do the time. We don't want to be with him alone in a Welsh forest. But I trained in it, and that led to me doing a lot of that work and training other people. But look, it was just before lockdown. I decided to do a vigil for 101 days. Now, that didn't mean that I was fasting for 101 days. It meant that I visited a Dartmoor forest, and I did it primarily to give something back. There was no sense of writing about it. There was no ambition for it other than listening. And I think the thing that I longed for, which I understood through the years in the tent, was was I truly wanted to be wedded to the wild. And a phrase I, I we were speaking earlier, a phrase I use is fidelity. Fidelity is important to me. I, I'm just as emotional as anybody else is, but I don't always give my deep emotions so much credence these days. I test them. Uh, and I wanted to test if I could cope with going into a wood for 101 days, simply to give thanks and primarily to listen. So that was what started that endeavor, though it went in a direction I never could have anticipated. Because you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian in the intervening years between age 17? Not in any shape or form. However, I didn't constellate adversarially to it. Um, 
I realized and I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's a young Christian's job to have to defend the catastrophes of the last two thousand years. I simply don't. Uh, so I never really kind of went for the jugular with it, but I would have been, and you can find this in my published works, I, re- I described myself as a pagan romantic, which even to this day I do get a bit of a crackle of excitement by. Yeah. So what changed? What happened? Well, it was just very odd. Um, so I go out uh, for three months, I think. I'm going out, going out. No one knew I was doing this, not even my daughter. It's amazing how you can find time to just disappear for a couple of hours a day. It was often at dusk. And then I was getting to the end of it. And it had all been, I was swimming in waters that were deeper than anything I'd been out through before. And I'd I'd been out there a while. And it was the last night. And in the center of the forest is is an old Iron Age fort. And I had elected to stay up all night in the Iron Age fort. And I was going to do my vigil there and then return. And I, I just wanted it to be done. I just wanted it to be done. I wasn't fasting. I wasn't gobbling visionary vine, nothing. I'd had a cup of tea. I'd had a meal. I go up into the forest, probably yeah, mid-evening, and it starts to get cold. It starts to get really, really cold. Uh, so, sort of, you know, in English terms, maybe minus five or six. And I'm kind of hopping foot to foot. Earlier on, I'd gone down to the River Dart and something strange had happened there. I'd decided I wanted to bring up a couple of rocks from the river, possibly to beat with my hands at certain points because I'd be praying. I like to have a rhythmic pattern going because I was a drummer. So I, I put my hand in the water and I picked up a rock and then about three foot away, I picked up another rock. And then I went for a walk. And it was only when I got into the woods they were the same rock that had split. They'd split. Different parts of the river, the same friggin' rock, like click, like that. And as I sat there in the dark, not over-processing any of this, I started to click the two bits of the rock together. And I said, you know, in my own way, however I said, I can't really remember, but I said, you know, you know, spirits of the forest, spirits of this place, I'm... I'm tired, but I'm here. I'm this strange, confused little man in the middle of a forest, hopefully in the middle of his life. And if there's anything finally you want me to see or absorb, you know, I I will be your faithful servant. Uh, And it was then I did something unusual. I looked up. I don't normally look up because in a forest, you've got animals moving about, and that really has your complete attention at two in the morning. If there's a stag, you know, it's quite a thing. The long and the short of it is I looked up and I saw that there was the night sky ahead of me. It's beautiful. And then I noticed that one of the stars peculiarly was colored. It wasn't that blue or sort of pale light. It was colored and it was moving at speed. And what happens next is so odd you know, it, it, I, I really, I just don't know. I, you know, I'm, I, I don't actually, I won't be talking about it very often because I don't want it to become a story. But this, this, this star took on a shape. I, again, it wasn't a hallucination. It was as real as this table. Um, and it looked rather like the Aurora Borealis. It was those kind of colors. And it took on the shape almost like the tip of an arrow or a kite. 
this is all happening over, you know, like 15 seconds. And I'm just thinking, what on earth is going on? And then completely silently, it just landed to my right, just went into the ground and disappeared. That was it. That was the whole experience. But of course, it wasn't the whole experience. I'll be living in that experience for the rest of my life. First thing to note is it was blissful. It wasn't frightening. It wasn't strange. Well, it was strange, but it was there was a kind of euphoria to it. And I jumped from foot to foot and just got through the end of the night. Then I staggered down to my cottage, and just as I was getting into bed, there was one final bit of drama for me. Uh, I closed my eyes and I saw these nine words, which I'd never seen before. And I, you know, not visionary in that way. They said, inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. And the word genesis alarmed me. And then I fell into a deep sleep. And then immediately it was lockdown. And so I had the whole of lockdown to brood on what had gone on in the forest, quite what to do with it. And then it was towards the end of that period, I suppose, uh, as they used to talk about Lewis, the most reluctant convert in all of England, um, I realized I was having some deep, through dreams and other things, some deep interior relationship had been formed through that last night in the forest with Christ. Uh, and I've just been negotiating my way through that ever since. Gosh. There is much more to be said about that, but I want to, um, before we turn to Felix's story, I want to just hear what did that mean for the tribes and the communities and the relationships you'd been in? You were telling stories in indigenous communities and in environmental communities and in pagan communities Ooh. and had this slow, tentative, but eventually quite public conversion. What's the aftermath of that been? Well, initially... Um it was extremely tough. Uh, there was a, you know, if, if you're trying to support a family uh, and your income kind of just evaporates, there was an element of that. Uh, many different factions of friends felt personally betrayed. Uh, there were women friends of mine who said, well, I just can't be friends with you anymore. You've lost your mind. Uh, First Nations folk as well. Because they thought it had sort of colonial, patriarchal oh, Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I get stick daily for the stories I tell already mm. with it, without now being a, a god-botherer. You know, it was just, it was open season for a while. Uh, but the last time I checked, you know, Yeshua said, put down your nets, come find out. It's not an insurance policy. You know, I knew what I was getting into. I knew what was going to happen. I knew there'd be porcupine quills chucked in my kidneys. And that was just how that was, because it is the pearl of great price, and I'm prepared to pay it. Martin, thank you so much. Felix, I'm going to come to our second question about the big ideas in your childhood. We've heard a bit about what's sacred to you. Start at the beginning. What what formed you? What um, ideas were in the air? I was born and raised in Paris. And as some of your listeners uh, probably know it's a place where the relationship to God is very complex. Um, so I grew up in a society where most people had very condescending views towards 
faith, the word God, religion, which is sort of a, a quite um, common condition in the modern world. Um, but there's something about it that is very um, intense and quite toxic in France. Uh, it is the country of Descartes, after all. Um, and um, yeah, th th there was, that was the backdrop. And then my, my mother had every possible cross around her neck and the Star of David and the Hand of Fatma as sort of an insurance policy, I feel. Um, and uh, so she was, she, she, there was something very spiritual. There is something very spiritual about her, bless her. Um, but my father, who is German, she's American of, um, of Greek, Hungarian, Polish, and German descent. My dad is very uh, German, not, not religious at all. Uh, like a Weberian, uh, like Protestant, um, very agnostic character who is very, uh, I would say he brought me up with a never so clearly defined, but yet unmistakable um, idea, which was that fundamentally people, faith and religion and, and God are, are things of people who are lacking in education. And I really embrace that, especially because I, around the age of seven or eight, I ended up in a, a Catholic school. And in catechism, I heard the phrase again and again, um, uh, forever and ever till the end of time. Pour les siècles des siècles in French. And that, phrase absolutely terrified me. It, it really, the, the idea of eternity just scare, scared the living shits out of me. And so I, I, I couldn't sleep for, for many months. I, I was really, really very uncomfortable. And I, and I became terrified by the moment I could, I could find diversions during the day, but when I went to bed, and I couldn't sleep. I had to face myself and these thoughts and this notion, this idea of eternity. And it really, it, it really played a very important role in what happened next, which was that I, I, I needed to find a way to avoid that moment. Um, and so when I was 13, I smoked my first joint. And that was it. I was like, okay, now I never have to face this moment again. I can go from consciousness to no consciousness with this, by this artificial means. And I use drugs every day for the next 25 years. Wow. And you had this extraordinary career of different, <laughs> different worlds, you know, boarding school in America, uh, spending time at Davos, you were a hip-hop producer, into graffiti, you worked for the Wall Street Journal. I have this picture of you as a kind of 
global playboy? Does that feel like it would have been a description at the time? So it was the International Herald Tribune and the oh, New York Times. Forgive me, forgive but me. apart from that, uh, I would have loved that description. Um, I, I thought, uh, you know, I, th- I, th- I loved the idea of being... Um, yeah, some friends uh, enjoyed the, the the phrase "international man of mystery," and I, yeah, I mean, I that was what was what, what was such a shock when I when I gave up drugs, um, and I I gave up drugs because I I really didn't have the choice. I mean, it was really the there were it was the last exit before Brooklyn, um, and I. When I when I quit, I I just wanted to stop um, snorting snorting copious amounts of white powder every other day, but I thought I was James Bond. I, I thought I was that that person, um, and it took me a while to understand that actually this huge gap had grown between the image I projected, um, which was. Very, I, I was a, I was a, a deeply, very sick narcissist, and I had become with drugs. Drugs make you completely bonkers. I mean, they literally make your understanding of reality and who you are uh, completely out of touch with with reality. Um, but I, I, I had to. At that point, I had to face the fact that I needed to change absolutely everything in my life uh, if I was going to survive. Mm. Many addicts have this um, deep reckoning through the 12-step methodology and the recovery movement. I know it's gone on to be very formative in your work and in the thinking behind Black Elephant. It's a horrible question, but what do you think is the magic of that movement that has been resisted corporate money, is passed hand-to-hand quietly from addict to addict in this very underground democratic way. What would you say is the the heart of the thing? What makes it so transformative? How did it transform you? Before I, I talk about what's the heart of the thing, there are very few organizations in the world that pay lawyers every year to not receive money. I mean, that gives you an idea of how incredibly revolutionary AA is. They, were, they so realized um, what, how dangerous and toxic money could be for an organization that that organization spends a lot of money making sure that they don't receive more than a, a certain sum, which is relatively small compared with what, what, what they're offered. Um, I think um, what's remarkable about these groups, and and I don't want to speak about any specific group um, or or twelve step fellowship, but what's what what I see is a group of people who have slowly but surely developed a kind of methodology to take people who see themselves as agnostic and disconnected from the others, terminally unique people, as, uh, as the language um, says, uh, 
And slowly but surely, without patronizing them, without um, without any prosit, yes, thank you, um, turns these people into creatures who have who naturally sort of understand the importance of humility and who show reverence for what they don't understand, which is not something, you know, in a way, modernity has tolerance only for two forms of knowledge, what we know and what we will know one day. The idea that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we will never understand is not really, doesn't fit in this model. And I think that's what recovery is about. It's about not so much the talking. We've become a civilization of, of smooth talkers or people who purport to be smooth talkers. And, and instead it's about um, getting people to, to walk a walk that, that is noble and, and elegant and, and understated. It's a beautiful thing, I think, being around addicts. Um, New, addicts newly in recovery is intense, you know, energizing, but addicts that have been in recovery for a while and have met, mentored people, there's a, I, I, I sometimes meet people and, and think, I think you might be someone who's been in the recovery movement because there's a certain sensibility, a certain quality that is very attractive. We're going to come back to that, but there's one more piece of your story. And I don't know exactly where it fits in the timeline, but you were not brought up in Islam had a conversion. How did it come about? So I, I converted at first, uh, to be honest, I was, I, I fell in love with a Tunisian woman and I was really bored, uh, with French weddings in the French countryside. And we had the opportunity, we could, we could either get married in France and, and most of her friends and family could not have made it. Or we could get married in Carthage, which is a, a stone's throw from where she grew up. Outside, just outside Tunis. Um, and I was a big fan of um, Hannibal and Asdrubal and the Carth Carthaginian princes. And I thought there was nothing more exciting than the idea of getting married in Carthage. And then she came back to me one day and said, oh, no, we're going to have to do it in France because Tunisian law would require you to convert to Islam. And I was completely, as I thought, I, I thought of my, uh, my, my worldview, I described then as agnosticism. I, I, I wouldn't quite describe it that way because I think I did have a God and unfortunately it was a very crappy deity. It, it was myself. Um, but back then I thought of myself as an agnostic and I, I it was just so obvious to me that no, 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 let's absolutely do it because a, I love you, and B, I think the truth of it was I, w I was a heat-seeking, like a, an attention-seeking missile, and the idea of the frowns on people's faces in the bourgeois Parisian milieu that I grew up in of, of having converted to Islam, I was just, I reveled in the idea, and so I just went for it. Um, and I, I didn't really... I thought it was really, I loved to say it, but I, I didn't, I wasn't, I, I didn't have faith. And, and my faith came much later in a very 
a Pascalian way. I, I, I came into recovery. I was told, I was just asked, do you, do you believe in God? Um, and I said, no. Um, and they said, well, the chances of you're staying sober or clean, uh, without something bigger than yourself to, that you believe in, uh, are really, really slim. And I said, well, that's lovely. Um, but I don't believe in God. So what, what am I supposed to do here? Like force myself into belief, into faith? And, and they said, no, no, you don't. Um, what you need is tell us, uh, like, would you be, are you open to the idea that you could have faith? And I said, well, pretty arrogant, but I think like saying no to that sounds like, you know, a bit would be a bit ridiculous. So I just, I said, yeah, sure, sure. Why not? Yeah. And so I was told, well, in the morning, first thing, when you get out of bed, um, why don't you get on your knees and ask for a day without drugs or alcohol? And last thing before you go to bed, uh, say thank you for a day without drugs and alcohol. And I think it honestly took maybe three weeks or not much more than three or four weeks before one day I was sitting in rehab in, in Spain, sitting outside on a bench and I saw a sunset and I could literally physically feel faith being born in me. And it was the first time. So my, my faith, you know, I tried quitting drugs hundreds of times, if not thousands of times on my own self-will. And I lasted sometimes six months. Twice I lasted six months without drugs and alcohol. Most of the time I would last a few hours. Um, and then one day I followed the advice that I just mentioned and so I didn't do it on my own. I, I was fueled by something that I didn't understand, but that I knew was not, it was not me. And I have never had a drug or a drink since then. And it's been almost 10 years. And so my faith is not conceptual. It's not intellectual. It's not um, abstract. It is the single most empirical thing in my life. It, it's just... Of course, of course, of very course. And as I walk this path, I can see that reverence for what is unfolding. And I, I now see, you know, like there's a, there's a wonderful story about how uh, the word synchronicity came about as a, an attempt to find a term to talk to a reductionist scientist by Carl Jung, uh, about to, to talk about what people have for centuries, uh, millennia, called uh, you know the work of God. You know when things, events, are not connected by causality but by meaning. And I see synchronicity, as you know, I see it everywhere, and I've had the opportunity to see it just yesterday and the day before in such an incredible way. It's just. It's and not showing reverence for it would be it would be so pathetic to me. Like it's it's just not even an option. It's 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 the most um, obvious thing in the world. And I would say the you know people say constantly. I'm asked, but why Islam? You know, since 
you know, you converted, but you were not born a Muslim. Well, to me, when I started having faith, it was very obvious that the, the, the right thing to do was to see this conversion as an ectomolke, the French would say, as a, as a, as an oppor- a missed opportunity, uh, you know, that could have probably saved me 10 of the roughest years in active addiction of my life. And that the right thing to do was to show reverence for the story um, um, and to uh, and to just pay pay respect to it and so um, it's it's a it's a I would say the important thing in my life is not Islam versus this uh, you know the, the the religion of my father or that of my mother it's no God God you know no faith faith and um i so happen to have landed in a certain abrahamic tradition and i'm i'm grateful for it i don't understand why but i don't really care why and it's not always been an easy ride you did the thing that many converts do which is burst out the gates with zeal and uh, vocalness and uh, start speaking in public in ways that got you into some quite big trouble yeah I'm I'm going to uh because I have children I'm not going to dwell on the 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 specific trouble that that uh that that um the form of that trouble but I I indeed um I was a very I was a loudmouth and I needed everyone to to hear that's the only way I knew how to behave was yeah. was let's make a show out of this and so I had to absolutely make a show of my conversion and of course when you enter uh, someone's house, you know, telling people what they should be doing is probably not the best idea. So I very soon find my, found myself um, attacked both by uh, Muslims who felt like, mate, just shut up, like for real. Um, and, you know, just listen and just keep your mouth shut for at least for a while. And, and by people on the far right who were just, you know, very, very, the Islamophobia is a very, very big thing in many parts of, of the non, uh, Muslim majority world in France, uh, among others. Mm. And how, when you look back at that time now of being thrown into very live everyday consequences of division, both internal division within Islam, and division within your own country. Were you learning lessons about that, about how we see each other, about our ability to connect across differences? How much do you think that's fed into your work now? Um, I, th- I think what comes to mind when, when you ask me that question is, you know, the, the, I've done, my journey has also been about trying to figure out what the other is and um in a way black elephant the project that that um i'm involved in and 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 martin and i are have been working on together with many others is about how do we it started in a way from you know on with a reflection on modern migration 
and the realization that the backdrop of politics worldwide for a very, very long time has been a, a clash of sorts between those of us who move around uh, and those of us who don't. And I don't just mean move around geographically, but culturally, socially, professionally, linguistically, religiously, religiously and those of us who do not. And there is a there's a tendency among those of us who move to be very condescending towards those of us who don't. And I've been really interested in, in the fallacies in, of that condescension um, and, and in how do you bridge the gap between the two. And in a way, um, you know, how do you figure, how do you make people realize not in their head but in their body that this idea, that this, this, you know, this illusion of separation and, and, and this idea that, that because someone doesn't look like me or doesn't think like me or doesn't uh, believe the same things um, uh, as I do, that therefore they are fundamentally different or we are at odds somehow. Yeah. And what's brought us, the three of us, to Patmos is, the, is this project, this Black Elephant project. And uh, it's been really interesting preparing to talk to you both and seeing how the kind of ingredients have gone into the pot of, uh, of a recovery movement that focuses on small person-to-person -person gatherings in which people are vulnerable and tell their stories, you know, bring their own stories and the way they've been shaped by the myths of the culture and the myths that they've told about themselves. And uh, that these gatherings can bring people together. Addicts can come from across all the tribal lines, you know, political, geographic, socioeconomic, really big one. I'm going to come um, to the kind of what is Black Elephant trying to do in the world, Felix, but maybe Martin, who has joined slightly later, you could just tell us what happens when a group gathers at a, what's called a Black Elephant Parade, because that's the name for a gathering of elephants. Part of the power is it's so stupefyingly simple. Uh, it, it, it's, it's baffling, really. Uh, in, in medieval alchemy, there's a phrase, vas bene clausum, and it means the well-sealed vessel. And the parades are really well-sealed vessels. There's something robust in its simplicity, which means you can go really, really deep. I often think as a modern culture, we'd benefit from trading growth for depth for a little while. And so I came, you know, Felix had this embryonic idea and was reaching out for others to collaborate and co-found it. And really it's whether it's in person which i you know i i love but also online astonishingly it actually does really work online um you've got usually about 6 to 9 people from extraordinarily diverse situations uh they're not on any there's not you know one one visiting exotic surrounded by lots and lots of people from london or paris uh, it's truly diverse and we brood on two to three questions. There's one person that's sort of facilitating it. And those questions are often rather disarming. They're not black and white questions. They're not questions you can really respond to with a yes or a no. Um, and so that was what intrigued me. As a storyteller, I realized that stories that were being told, disclosures that seemed incredibly unique, incredibly personal, had, and it was a phrase that, that uh, 
Felix used a minute ago, a, not just a cultural universality to it, but a mythic universality to it. I was hearing echoes of very old stories that I've been telling for a really, really long time. And that made me feel that something really exciting was happening because it wasn't, this isn't an accident that this is happening. This is a kind of a peculiar simpatico. So I'm intrigued by hearing people from, it's tremendously refreshing to be around folks from massively different experiences. And then from my point of view as a storyteller, I start to see the tributary of their disclosure leading to this great ocean of myth that is often just out of sight from them. Mm. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. The most particular is the most universal always comes to mind when sitting in the conversations. And I've been in Black Elephant Parades where you have a kind of former conservative defence minister sitting next to someone who's literally just got back from being released from prison because they're an Extinction Rebellion um, campaigner, people speaking from Mali or Senegal, people from Dublin, the religious and class and socioeconomic and race and gender and worldview diversity is not something I've ever seen before. And the magic of that, which could be a kind of recipe for an explosion of tension and tribalism, right? We're very, I think we're very formed, we're very used now to showing up in a group and thinking, right, where are the disagreements? Where are the divides? Who's like me? Who's not? Who might I offend? Who am I going to get offended by? Where is my slight fight or flight kicking in to make me prickly and defensive? And something about starting with good questions just diffuses it. And I think we were drawn to each other, Felix, because it feels very adjacent to what the sacred is trying to do, to ask an unusually deep question and then uh, just listen, just listen to people I don't know, people I might not agree with, people who I might not feel tribally aligned with. And over the course of listening, they go from the two-dimensional stereotype, which I had in my head, to a full human person who's fragile and foolish like me and beautiful and precious. What makes a good black elephant question? What is the kind of question that maybe listeners can use in their own settings to get beyond the two-dimensional to the person they're in conversation with, whether it's a family member or a work colleague or a stranger? I think it's, um, the answer is that usually when we're trying to when there's a perceived gap between people, um, our culture, the enlightenment culture that we bathe in, uh, tells us that we should talk about the thing that we might disagree about and, and, and on. And, and so, you know, we, we don't go there directly, but we basically stay in the realm of the, the reasoned conversation. And I remember a conversation with my first sponsor, who is a, an, an amazing man, who is a school teacher nowadays, um, and he has 20 years clean plus, uh, but he used to be an intravenous heroin addict. And when I met him, as I mentioned earlier on, I thought, you know, I had a serious problem with drugs, but I was a pretty awesome dude. And so I went to AA mean or whatever meetings. Uh, I went to 12 step fellowship meetings. Um, and I told people 
what I thought of whatever. And one day, it, it, it was probably in the first weeks of my recovery, he said, instead of telling me, why don't you just shut up and listen, he said something that saved my life. He said, you know, Felix, when you talk about like whatever philosopher, like the thing that during the, the, the meeting that came up that reminds you of this or that uh, school of thought or um, when you talk about those things, sometimes it's very interesting, but it doesn't help me. It doesn't help me save myself. Um, but when you tell me about how you felt on the last day that you used drugs or how you feel today, that really helps me. And at some point in Black Elephant, at first the, the project was, it was, it was doomed. I mean, it was really not looking good because we were gathering very different people and then we were just talking about like the, the thing, the, uh, the, you know, the issues. And it, it just, it just blew up. It was a, there's an, a, a New York Times magazine somewhere about like one of these uh, parades going very, very badly um, with essentially a bunch of Muslim intellectuals in Paris and a whole bunch of people who were about to vote for the far right. And, and, and it, just did not go very well. I sort of love the spur where you thought, I know, I'll just put all those people in a room. Whatever went through my mind. But at some point, it dawned on me that the, the, that the way to do this was to state, like, in a way that the single most momentous political act in the troubled world that we are in was actually to not talk about the politics, to not talk about the issues and to just talk about what might allow us to identify with one another. Mm -hmm. And identification is a huge part of recovery. You come in and you think, I am different from all of you. And it, this is not going to work for me. And what happens is you, at some point, if you're lucky, you hear someone's story and you realize this guy or this lady, um, they were just as bad as me. They were really, really in trouble. And yet here they are. And if they could do it, maybe I can. And that is part, that identification in a different way plays a role, I think, in Black Elephant because it allows us to say, huh, you know, I thought, I've heard this again, time and time again, in at, at, just after meetings, people say, I thought this person was really awful. And actually, they're quite nice. Yeah. Well, the questions like, you know, what are you most afraid of? Or um, what are you resisting in your life? Or, um, you know, who did you want to be when you grew up? Those kind of questions that get us beyond the kind of CV-based impressive face that we present to the world are designed to do. And you say this, you know, Black Elephant's kind of special source is creating a safe and appropriate container for vulnerability, for being a social network with vulnerability at its heart. Why is that such a powerful thing, revealing something of ourselves? Why is it? It's magic because you don't bring a room closer through victory stories. 
It just doesn't work like that. It never worked like that. It just makes people lonely. And most of us are terrifically lonely. And so you leave a meeting feeling far less isolated than you went in. Yeah. You can you say a little bit more a little bit about Ted Hughes and contact? Oh. <laughs> in your book you quote Ted Hughes, this great nature do, poet. Yeah. Um, yeah. how do you think that relates if it does? Well, Ted Hughes was a great fisherman. He was an angler and he used to fish occasionally in the River Dart right at the bottom of the garden where my cottage was. And I I always have an image when Ted is fishing that actually his his line is going into not just a, a river but but a blood vessel. He's kind of hooked into the blood of a location. He's hooked into the immediacy and the power and the primordial myth-making of Dartmoor. And all good writers are very patient fisher people. And so they go there and they just wait and they wait and they wait and they wait and then something happens. It's back to this word I keep using, fidelity. Uh, life is a contact sport. You know, that's what I realize. Um, I'm just coming back off. I'm at the end of about five weeks or so of being on the road, and I've met thousands and thousands of people. And it shines an uncomfortable light on me that after a while, I don't like people very much. Uh, and I have to rehydrate myself, actually, through prayer, through general basic conviviality, because ironically, in a, in a fairy tale, and I use fairy tales in a positive sense because I think they are in many ways, in a fairy tale, when you're going to end up in a bad spot, it's always when you're isolated. A dark man will come down from the woods and say, you're not meant for this place. You're better than these people or you're worse than these people. And there's a poet called Antonio Machado, and he says this. He says, in my solitude, I have seen many things that were not true. In my solitude, I've seen many things that were not true. And I really, really experience a breaking of that enchantment at the, at the parades. It's extraordinary what is going on. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's why I'm here. That's beautiful. There's a... Uh, Jewish theologian philosopher called Martin Buber, who regular readers, uh, regular listeners will be bored of me quoting, but he he talks about I thou moments, and and the line that comes back to me is all living is meeting, which I think is another way of saying life is a contact sport. The 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 really real are the moments when we see each other, um, and see each other as as fully human, as fully vulnerable. Martin, you have uh, crossed tribes, navigated differences, done so quite recently. We've heard about vulnerability. Is there anything else you'd, you'd offer that you've learned? Have you managed to repair any of those relationships? What helps us cross those divides and have those moments of contact, even when we might assume, frankly, that we're going to hate each other? Loving attention. You know, loving attention. That doesn't mean, though, that you're endlessly malleable. <laughs> I'm not endlessly malleable. But on the other hand, I've just stopped taking everything so intensely personally all the time. There's really, there's really, Robert Bly, once there's an American poet, he said to me, you know, he said, sometimes people are like oak trees pretending they're willow trees, or you're a lion pretending to be a mouse. Cut it out. Uh, and I was like, wow, okay, there's a different way of being in the world. You, you shouldn't be a bully. 
you know, especially if you build up knowledge, uh, you're, we're, we're, we're all walking wounded. We're all walking wounded. And there's just some basic barometer of health when that is acknowledged. And you haven't walked 100 miles in that person's shoes. You don't know the worries that's going on in their, in their body at that moment, which causes any number of reactions. So, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not one of nature's huggers, really. When I love people, I hug them constantly. But traveling across Canada... People were always trying to hug me. And I said, I, I, I just don't roll like that yet. And it would be inauthentic for me to do that. It's funny, for years I've had a phrase, I think it's in Courting the Wild Twin, in your incompleteness is your authenticity. And that is a black elephant statement, if ever there was one. In your incompleteness is your authenticity. Yeah. Felix, what have you learned crossing religious tribes, political tribes, geographical tribes? What helps us? see each other okay i'm not gonna do justice to the way this should be said in scottish <laughs> but i have been scottish I, yeah what are you about to do to this yeah i know <laughs> there's a poem by robert bligh um that really made me think of black elephant uh and it's called people like us and it goes there are more like us all over the world there are confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up and people who love God, who can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. A wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. It rings just in time to save the house. And the second story man gets the address wrong where the insomniac lives. And he's lonely, and they talk, and the thief goes back to college. Even in graduate school, you can wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor, and you find your soul, and greatness has a defender, and even in death, you're safe. Felix and Martin, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Secret. Thank you. Thank you. Well, obviously, Felix saying engaging across difference and... um <laughs> Connecting with the other really uh, is something that I, I love to hear. And then this line he used in that first question, whose temple do you serve in, has really um, stayed with me. And it's making me think about whether um, what's sacred has to be something outside of ourselves. It, it's the thing that orient our lives to in, in one sense. It's, it's, what, it's what we worship. Um, it's what we are. Um, seeking to bow down to. Uh, Martin said that he, he struggled to answer the question, which um, interests me. And he thought it might have been nature previously, but now because of this quite recent um, ecstatic conversion to Christianity, it's something bigger than nature or deeper than nature. I can't remember his exact words, but he used this amazing line um, that he is falling into a devastation of love. Um, which is just a very beautiful uh, thing to say and presumably a very beautiful thing to experience. And it was contrasted with how he describes the Christianity of his childhood as something that had been chloroformed. Um, I do think that's too many people's experience that the wildness that Martin has been drawn to all his life and latterly in Christianity 
is really tidied up in um, a lot of churches and a lot of um, people's memories, I think, of their childhood. You know, this image of two warm radiators and um, in my case, kind of colouring in and um, well-meaning older women um, and slightly out of tune hymns. It reminds me of what a previous guest in the series, Dougald, talked about sitting in a cathedral and thinking we've we've forgotten that this bit is supposed to be the punchline, <laughs> that the um, the deadening effects actually of some of the way we enact. I'm just going to talk about Christianity because I don't want to speak for other religions, but I, I think most of us listening, if we're in a um, Western context, will have experienced that sometimes Christianity can be really boring. And it sounds like that was um, Martin's experience in his childhood. He uses this phrase, some, he never, he never lost sight that there was some sort of being behind the curtain. Such an interesting thing, isn't it? I wonder if, I wonder if people, like, what is it that means that some people have this intuition? It's just deep sense that there probably is something beyond us. And some people just don't have that. In fact, might have the intuition that there probably isn't. And I'm sure some of that is that formative time in childhood. And when our kind of imaginative world and our sort of plausibility structures are being formed and even sort of our, you know, neural pathways are being formed, what isn't, isn't imaginable, what feels obvious and what doesn't feel obvious um, is so key. And I also wonder if there's a kind of temperamental thing, if that breaks down across personality lines. So he, Martin says he didn't know you could be a storyteller um, and that he'd never seen a storyteller. And uh, the the time that we were recording this is the first time I'd ever seen a storyteller uh, because Martin was telling us stories as part of this event. And I have to say, it was absolutely spellbinding. The deep kind of comfort and fun of being told to sit still and be told a story in all seriousness, was just very, it was very moving and very, um, just a very powerful thing. These old stories told well. Um, it did make me wonder why, why, why aren't there more storytellers? Why is this less, why has this sort of been edged right, right to the edges of our kind of cultural options? You know, we watch films, we go to the theatre, we read novels. It's not the stories are not present in our lives, but the role of someone who used to be called the bard, who would transmit stories live in front of groups. Let's have more of those. That's what I was left thinking. And then the response of Martin's parents. I, I really do at the moment feel like I'm magnetically drawn to stories of good parents where uh, people were people were held in love by their parents making good choices, even when they might have been imperfect in lots of other ways. You know, they, Martin said, his parents said, okay, you know, you're living in a tent, wandering the wild. Uh, but they didn't berate him or harangue him or try and make him fit into a more conventional life. They just said, okay, what happens next? We love you. It was beautiful. I love this idea of stories as kind of things of their own with their own agency. Martin at one point says, you know, if you if you mess too much with it, the stories won't respect you. That there's a it's a wild animal, not a pelt. Um 
And the sense of them as the oldest and deepest form of cultural transmission, that a, a culture worth the name will will take what's important to it and and pass it down via stories. There's something very close to magic about that. He really tried to get to what a story is and the sense that a sort of eff- efficacious story shifts something in the room in the psychic material. I'm going to have my eye out for that, I think, next time I go to the theatre or... Um, next time there's a sort of collective moment. I wonder if there's something like the collective. When we hear a story together, that's important. And then there's this this bit of Martin being, you know, constantly being asked to tell different stories because the ones that he tells are too violent or um, too colonial or too misogynistic. You know, there's all all kinds of ways we're reassessing the cultural fabric that makes up our common life. And actually at one point in the time, I challenged Martin on this because the first story he told felt to me like the only female characters were very passive. And I was a bit like, ah, very gently. And I hope with curiosity rather than being a pain in the ass. I was like, what do you do with this? Is the body of myth mainly stories of men, basically? Um, we had a really good conversation about it. And it's not the first time Martin's been asked that question. And he had some very kind of thoughtful reflections and a real body of work to show how serious he takes that. And the other the other stories he told during the time were not like that at all. In fact, I found them very moving and inspiring in their female characters. But it just made me realise how much we are currently in a moment of scrapping about what stories are legitimate and what stories we choose to tell and what stories we choose to be formed by. And actually, if we can do that in ways that are respectful, I think that's probably healthy. I think those are really good questions to be asking. Um, he wanted to be wedded to the wild, this idea of fidelity. You know, what a strange thing to want to do, to go to the woods and give thanks and listen as someone who'd call themselves a pagan romantic. And we talked a bit about Martin's conversion, um, but as he said at the beginning, he said, I won't be talking about it very often because I don't want it to become a story. And I see this often with people who've had kind of conversions and then talked about them in public. And not to make it all about me, for a second, but I'm writing a book which involves some of my story with my faith. It's a complicated thing because one, memory is a strange beast and the further away you get from it in time, it's hard to know exactly what happened, particularly where it intersects with other people. It's hard to know if you're being truthful. You can only tell it from your point of view and it can deaden into an anecdote And I really respected Martin's kind of, I'm still processing, this strange thing happened. I would now call myself a Christian. I need to not milk it too much almost. I need to not tell it and tell it and tell it until it goes dead. Um, So even though I could have spent a whole interview talking to him about that, uh, that's why it was um, quite boundary. And then finally on Martin, his response to, the response to his conversion being a slightly difficult thing to navigate. And it reminded me again of what we spoke about with Anaya for Lauren Iman, how much of our friendships and relationships are premised on sameness, on the sense that we agree on the big things and how destabilizing it can be when someone we know and love changes their mind on something. I wish there was like more guidance or more normalizing. And if these are the things that help when your friendship or your relationship is shifting because someone's changed their mind or changed their tribe, don't panic. <laughs> like you, you, you will probably still have other things in common and you can find ways through this if the relationship is important to you. 
that that fight or flight response of like something in me is under threat because someone I love is changing. That um, I'd love us to, you know, find a way to make that um, less devastating all around. And then we turn to Felix and his context in France with laïcité and the sense that religion was basically for stupid people. And this really sort of sad thing about being terrified by the idea of eternity and not wanting to go to sleep because of this existential dread that led him into addiction and 25 years of numbing his feelings and numbing his existential longings with weed and cocaine. He describes that period in his life, honestly, and I have said this to him, he sounds like he was a first-class asshole. I'm really glad I didn't meet Felix in this period of his life because the narcissism and the ego and the um, alpha energy must have been quite a lot to behold. Um, but as recovery often does, um, recovery is a place where people with those tendencies can go and find a better way to be in the world. I didn't know that AA just refused money, but it doesn't surprise me. I am so fascinated by the recovery movement. It must be, I spend a lot of time in the social change world with people trying to come up with kind of programs and interventions for all kinds of things. AA must be the best evidenced, most enduring project, intervention, process that brings transformation in people's lives. Surely it must be. It's global. Millions of people have been through it. And yet it's not carefully branded or corporate or earning anyone any money really. And that's just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I said in the interview how much I'm drawn to addicts who've been in recovery for a while because there's nothing like it for forcing people to get to grips with themselves, I think. The deep the deep theological roots of it, it came out of um, a theological group called the Oxford Movement, but then drew in kind of Carl Jung's psychology and a bunch of other influences. But the the kind of reckoning with your own brokenness and seeking help and repair through vulnerability is a a very, very powerful cocktail of things. Um, just before we talk about Black Elephant, I should say, converting to Islam because you want a cool wedding and you want to piss off your bourgeois French friends. That's a new one. That's a new, that's a new reason to become religious. I'm really glad that there was a later moment in which something more serious slipped into that um, container. And then we talked a bit about Black Elephant. And one of the, I wanted to talk to both of these people for the podcast because they've had really interesting lives and they have crossed tribes and they have learned to navigate difference. Um, but I also wanted to talk to them because Black Elephant feels uh, like it has something at its heart that is not a million miles away from the sacred, a commitment to a sense that it's possible for us to see each other as fully human, to show up um, as ourselves and resist our kind of self-righteous, finger-pointy, disconnecting tendencies. And that at the heart of that is listening and listening to someone, not just about what their job is or how their day's been, or if they're going on holiday or what their political positions are, but listening to something deeper, listening to 
who they really are, if there's such a thing, the less polished public version of someone. And there were a couple of lines that I'll take away with me. You don't ring, you don't bring a room closer through victory stories and life is a contact sport. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Dan Turner, Lizzie Harvey and Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and you can find all about Theos's work at theosthinktank.co.uk. Please do get in touch with me via Instagram, via Twitter. I'm easy to find and I've recently launched a substack at morefullyalive.substack.com. I really, really value um, hearing from you and knowing what you're thinking about. And of course, if you can take a moment to leave us a review or a rating or share an episode with a friend, we would be so grateful. Until next time. Mm-hmm.